We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So we're going to turn to Acts 28. Now here's what we've been doing. We have been spending about a week per chapter, right? So 28 weeks for us. And uh, we, we don't have time to like read through the entire chapter here on a Sunday morning. And so my hope is, my prayer is that what it's doing though is it's driving you and compelling you to go home and read all of it for yourselves as well. So what we're going to do today, though, is try to get the highlights of this chapter. And so we're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to skip, and we're going to read some more. And, and I almost hate doing that, right? I hate cutting out some of that context. So I will fill in some of the context as we go, but I strongly encourage you to read the entire chapter, even later today. Acts 28 picks up like this. Once safely on shore... This is Luke writing. We found out that the island was called Malta. If you remember last week, John did a great job with his sermon, and we heard about in Acts 27, there was a shipwreck, and they, they ended up on this island. They didn't know what it was yet, and so we find out now it's called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was rainy and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he's a God. It's a quick turnaround, right? Uh, and so what, what happens from there is Paul then actually starts to, he prays over a man who's sick and he gets healed. And so then everyone starts bringing all their sick people on this island to Paul and they're praying over these people and God heals a lot of people there. So when they get ready to actually leave that island, they get another ship and they're ready to go. The islanders just continue to show that kindness to them and they give them everything they need for their journey and send them out. Verse 14 says, and then we came to Rome. And so it's like the culmination of this big, long, crazy journey. And finally, they come to Rome. Verse 16, we'll pick back up. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And so what's interesting is from there, the next few verses, you see uh, these Jewish leaders, they go, hey, Paul, we haven't heard anything about you, actually. Like, he didn't need to call them together to defend himself, right? They're like, actually, we, we haven't heard anything about what you're talking about. Like, he could have just slipped under the radar, right? Uh, but they go, but since you're bringing it up, let's talk about it, right? Paul, we haven't heard anything about this. You, you weren't in any trouble with us. But since you're bringing it up, let's hear about it. And so he goes to start telling them the gospel. 
the good news message that Jesus is the rescuing savior that the whole world had been waiting for. And so this message that he had found himself in trouble by so many different uh, public figures and religious leaders and had been sent to go see Caesar for this reason. And so he, he shares all this with them and it says that some of them uh, believe what he says, but some of them don't and they're arguing. Picking up in verse 25, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, and he's quoting Isaiah 6 here, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Keep going. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Can you back up again? Yeah, I got to finish it before you go. <laughs> By the way, uh, Patrick and Aaron normally do sound and slides, so thank you, Bethany, for filling in. Uh, he says, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Remember that word Gentiles just means nations, to the other nations. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In Acts 28, and all of the book of Acts ends right there. Father, we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see, have ears to hear, have minds to understand. God, that we would not be closed off uh, like the people Paul was speaking to, like the people you spoke to through Isaiah, but that we would be open to see your truth, to experience you and your goodness, and to be transformed by you, even here today, this morning. We ask these things to the glory of the Father, and the power of the Spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so I don't know what a lot of your missio communities talk about when they get together. Uh, probably like something found in the Bible, maybe. Probably something really deep. I don't know. But uh, this last Wednesday, when RMC got together, we were talking about the series Lost. Do you guys remember that show? Anyone watch that? Uh, Bethany and I have like this fond memory of this show and also a love-hate relationship with the show too because we started watching it when our twins were still in the womb and Bethany was on bed rest for two months in the hospital, couldn't leave her bed for anything. Blockbuster was still a thing then. So I went to Blockbuster and I picked up like the whole season, first season of Lost. It had been on for a few seasons already. We were hearing so much about it. Never had time for it. Suddenly we had all the time in the world. So I would sit there in her hospital room next to her bed and on our laptop, we would watch Lost. Like laptops still had DVD players back then. They were thicker. And so we watched all the season one. We're like, oh, this is a really cool show. Let's go get season two, right? And again, we had all the time in the world now. So we were just flying through, binge watching Lost. And Bethany had heard an interview with J.J. Abrams, the guy who created the show. And he had said, oh, we have this whole thing mapped out. We, we're going to tie everything up by the time this show ends. By the time we get to the end of season seven, I think it was, we'll answer every question because there's so much mystery involved in the show. And Bethany was like, I don't want to watch this show if they're not going to answer these questions. I just can't do it. 
So she heard this interview and like, oh, we're, we're going to answer everything. We got it all mapped out from the time we started the show. We knew where we were going. We're like, okay, cool. We're in. Guess what? Season, season seven comes and it answers like 3% of the questions. It was the worst season ever. We get to the end of it. We're like, what in the world? What about this thing? What about, they never went back to this thing that happened in season three. And we were just like, this is terrible. We, we wanted like an addendum. Like we wanted there to be like a movie to come out to be like, explain everything, wrap it all up, right? But it didn't happen. Well, Acts 28 kind of feels that way. The book of Acts, uh, it, it kind of feels like you, you get to the end and then it just gets cut off. You're like, wait a second. Did Paul ever make it to Spain? Do you guys remember that's where he was actually trying to go? Not just to Rome. Rome was a stopping point, and he wanted then the church in Rome to actually fund his way to get to Spain because at that time, that was the ends of the earth. Does he ever get there? And we don't know. And even while he's in Rome, does he ever actually go before Caesar? Remember, this the whole reason they brought him to Rome is he appealed to Caesar, he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You guys are trying to put me in prison. Some of you are trying to kill me. I'm a Roman citizen, though, and I have a right to go talk to Caesar before this happens. And so the dude who runs the entire world empire, Paul's supposed to go stand before him, and we don't even get that story. It just kind of gets cut off. Like, what happens? When does Paul make it to Spain? Does he make it to Spain? Does he die? Like, we don't hear anything about and, and Paul lived happily ever after, or Paul had this brutal death. We just don't get an ending at all. Now, another interesting thing happens that's similar to the story Lost is they have a shipwreck on a strange island. Now, in, in Lost, it's a plane crash, right? But they end up crashing, and they're on this kind of remote island, and some weird stuff happens. At the beginning of Acts 28... It's a much different story than what happens at the end of Acts 28. And there's some really strange things. It says Paul gets there, and they just got done with the shipwreck, and he immediately gets to work with building a fire. Like the same guy who was on the boat when everyone was starving and they're worried about the storm, and he's like, hey, guys, let's eat, and he takes care of them. Now they just get off of the shipwreck, and he's like, okay, everyone's going to be cold, and he immediately gets to work there too. It's like he can't sit still. And so he starts building a fire, and this snake comes out and attaches itself to his arm. That's what it says. You know what that means, right? Like it sunk its teeth in. It's biting him. Now, the islanders, they've seen this before. And they know that those snakes are venomous. And they're like, oh, this dude, he, he must be someone bad. Now, that's a weird leap to make, right? First, they're, like, they're showing them great kindness. They know they're prisoners coming off of this shipwreck, but they're caring for them because they would have had this superstitious thought that if they could survive the sea like that, then there must be, the gods must have some kind of favor on them. So we must show them kindness, right? And so they're caring for them. But then Paul gets a snake bite, and they're like, who survives the sea only to get killed by a snake when he gets on the land? And there was actually this Greek poem that would have been going around at that time that talks about a person who survives a storm just to get bit by a snake. And this person in the story was a murderer. And it was the whole story was this goddess justice, who we read about. Uh, this goddess justice was saying, I'm coming after you. Justice will happen and you will get yours, right? And he was trying to flee from it the whole time. And he thinks he makes it getting away from the storm. And then she gets him with a snake bite. So that's why they say, oh, the goddess justice has got him. He must be 
the murderer this story is talking about. So they make this big leap here. And then what does Paul do? It says he shakes it off. He just shakes it off and he keeps going back to tending to the fire to warm everybody and himself with. So they're like, all right, just give it time. Like he's gonna, it's gonna swell up. It's gonna go bad. He's gonna keel over pretty soon. He's gonna be dead, right? But they keep watching and nothing happens. So then they make another leap. Well, if he's not a murderer, the goddess justice isn't getting him and he could survive that venomous snake bite, he must be a god, right? Okay, so like you're a prisoner to your murderer to you're a god. This isn't the first time that people have mistaken Paul for being a god, is it? When was the other time we heard about that? Do you guys remember? It was in Acts 14. It was in a city called Lystra. He and Barnabas were there preaching and people started bowing down to them thinking they were Zeus and Hermes. And what did they do? They tore their clothes, which is a sign of mourning. And they're like, hey, you guys, no, 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 don't worship us. We're regular men. We're regular people just like you. We too are in need of a God to come and rescue us. Let us tell you about who that God is. And that's the whole reason Paul's here at this island called Malta also. Now this island Malta, I think we have a map. There's still the Maltese islands today. All right, and, and Malta is its own country. It's its own place. And so if you remember the map, this is where Paul left from Jerusalem, and he's now made it all the way over to here, to Malta. So if you recognize the boot of Italy, right? That's the bottom of Italy right there. Right underneath Sicily, there's this little island here called Malta. And if you were to go there today, actually on the north side of that little island, it's still called St. Paul's Bay because that's where they think that Paul actually shipwrecked and landed there. So you can actually like book a a trip and go check out St. Paul's Bay even still today. That's where they were. And so they're they're at this place, Malta. And Malta, it's a word just means sweet honey. And it ended up being this kind of sweet moment where Paul finds some kind of refuge from the storm for a moment, right? Where, Where they take good care of them, And then they start bringing people and Paul prays and God heals them. Not Paul, God heals them through Paul's prayers. And and they love having them there. And so then they give them all the things they need for them to take off on their trip. But this weird story of the snake bite has confused a lot of people. Have you guys actually heard of there's, there's churches that will intentionally in their service have snake handling? You know what that is? And so they would would bring out like a little box full of some serpents and they'd be like, anyone who really has true faith, you can come and handle these venomous, poisonous snakes and you will be fine. Even if it bites you, you will live. Just like what happened to Paul. There's churches that actually do this. And so I I want us to practice our faith right now. And so I brought, if I could just grab, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that, guys. Uh, there's, There's a whole like faith built around that which is crazy. You know what's especially crazy about that? It's actually in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9. We have that on the screen here. We get told this. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. There's this National Geographic article about those snake handling churches. And it's, I love, the title is uh, Snake Handling Church Members Trust God, dot, 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 and increasingly trust doctors because they're getting bit and then they got to go to the hospital, right? 
Don't, don't test God with this stuff. That's not, Paul wasn't trying to test God and be like, oh, let's see if, you know, if he's going to protect me here. This is what Jesus says to Satan in the wilderness when he's being tempted for 40 days. And Satan's like, hey, go throw yourself off of a cliff and God's angels will come and rescue you if you really are the son of God. And he's like, no, no, no. The word says not to test God. So this is not the point here, right? I think there's a deeper point here happening. Paul's there to simply share the message of Jesus and how he has good news of life and salvation and rescue for all people. And in seeing what happens here as God protects and cares for Paul in this moment, it actually gives some credibility where the people start listening to him. Not because he's a God though, but because when they start to give him that praise, he turns it down and says, no, let me direct you to where that praise really belongs. But I think it's also showing us something even deeper. When I first moved out of my parents' house uh, at 18 years old, got into an apartment with a guy for the first time, had a roommate, and he had a pet iguana named Frank. Now this iguana, it's supposed to be a vegetarian, but he thought it would be a fun experiment to feed meat to Frank, just to see what would happen. So it's all he would ever feed Frank. And he would open up the lid to Frank's cage and just poke him with a stick. He was trying to train him to be like this mean, vicious killer. And it worked. Frank also escaped from his tank often. And it freaked me out, you guys. I I remember one time vividly, I'm sitting there at my computer, at my desk, in my room, working on some, I was like, the one semester I went to college and I'm working on some homework and I look over and in my doorway, Frank's there just staring at me because he had gotten out. And then no exaggeration. He starts pacing back and forth in my doorway, but his eyes are locked on me the whole time. And he's like puffing his chest out. And he's like, what are you going to (laughs) do? You know, like he's just staring me down and I'm like, "I'm, I'm just frozen. I can't leave my room because I'm deathly afraid of this thing, right? I'm like yelling for my roommate to come get his iguana and put him back. Uh, This was not natural for these types of iguanas. He had totally like flipped the created order of what this thing is supposed to be like. And it should have been like a fun pet to have around, but because of the way he had distorted things, instead of caring for it, it, it had turned upside down the created order. Listen, I I think this story about the snake is reminding us of the turned upside down of the created order that God made in the beginning, right? We've heard about snakes showing up in places before, haven't we, right? If we think back all the way to the very beginning of this story, not of Acts, but of the whole story it's a part of, there's a snake that enters into the garden, and what were humans given the task of? They, they had dominion and authority over all of creation, and they were to name and care for the animals as part of what they were doing, right? As well as to be fruitful and multiply and to expand the effects of the garden across all the earth. And this thing that they're supposed to have dominion and authority over comes and starts whispering lies to them. And they, they sub, allow it to subvert their authority. They give their authority over to this created thing. They let it rule over them. 
And so now we're being reminded of this. This created order has been flipped upside down. Things are twisted and distorted. It's not the way it should be, but we're seeing now a glimpse through what Paul gets to experience God doing in his life. We see a glimpse of God putting things back in order. That 1 Corinthians 10, 9 verse I just read, uh, it wasn't just talking about random people who are like, I want a snake handle and see if God's gonna protect me. It actually was talking about Israel. Uh, and we have verse for that as well. Back in Numbers chapter 21, God's people Israel, they were traveling through the wilderness. And it says in verse four, that as they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Do you guys remember how God provided food for them in the wilderness? There was food falling from the sky. It was like cloudy with a chance of meatballs. It's miraculous. And they're like, we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Like, just think about that for a second. They start complaining against God, and he's like, oh, yeah? Like, this is actually, at first glance, kind of a hard passage of Scripture to read. He sends venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, Oh, oh, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord, against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I love that. They're like, oh, okay, uncle, uncle, we're out. Here's the thing. It sounds like a, a vengeful God at first when you first read that. But remember the story that they're in. They had given their authority over to a serpent in the garden. And now they're in the wilderness because of that. Because humanity had been exiled from the garden. They're now wandering in the wilderness thousands of years later. And they're still giving their authority over to the lies of that serpent. Because what was a lie? It was, you don't need to trust God. You can decide for yourself. They're in the wilderness being forced to trust God to provide food for them daily. And they still, they still don't trust him. They're still listening to the lies of the serpent. And God says, let me show you how you have given yourself over to this thing that will kill you. And that's exactly what happens in the physical world so they can see it. And in God's mercy, in his grace, when Moses prays for the people, he provides a way to protect them. But that's, that's the reality that we're in right there. And so what happens at the beginning of Acts 28 is kind of like this reversal moment of that, right? Israel, who was supposed to be God's chosen people, blessed to be a blessing to all the nations, still were trusting in the lies of the serpent, still were trusting in themselves, still were trusting in these other nations, anything and everything and everyone, but the one who created them and is actually worthy of their trust. And this moment of Paul, this moment of this man, by the way, who was what the Maltese people believed, a murderer at one point in his life, he was actually going after the people who were following Jesus at one point in his life. Now at this point in his life, only by the grace of God and the spirit at work in him is used for this picture of saying, hey, God has not given up. He is setting things back right again. God is rescuing us from the snake in the garden. And so when Paul gets to Rome, 
And, and I think there's a reason. It sounds like two different stories and two different sermons at first in Acts 28. But there's a connection here. When Paul gets to Rome, he's speaking once again to these Israelite people who still, after centuries, have not given their full trust to God. They know that there is supposed to be a rescuing Savior who will come, and they don't believe him when they see him. Jesus shows up, but he doesn't look the way they want it to look. Remember that lie in the garden? You don't have to trust God's way of doing things. Find your own way. They had decided for themselves, this is what rescue would look like. And when Jesus shows up, he didn't fit the bill for them. And so in their own understanding, in their own wisdom, in their own deciding of what's right and not right, they say, no, no, this can't be the Messiah. There's no way. And so they don't trust God. They continue they continue to walk with the venomous poison of the snake flowing through their veins. So Paul's speaking with them and he's sharing the good news of Jesus. Some of them start to believe, but many of them doubt and they're arguing and he gives them one final word before they leave him that day. And what he does is he quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Let's pull that back up. Let's remember what he says to them. This is gonna be straight from Isaiah 6 now, 9 through 10. God speaking to Israel through his prophet, his servant, Isaiah. He said, go and tell this people, Israel, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Hold on to that phrase for a second, okay? Turn and be healed. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 13. Because Isaiah, he asks, he's like, hey, what, is, is this going to be what it is forever? And God says, no, no, no. And he says, and listen, though a tenth will remain in the land, he starts talking about Israelites falling, falling away, turning away. But he says, though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as a terebinth and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What he's saying there is this. He's using garden terminology. He says, Israel's going to get cut down to just a stump, but there's, there's a seed that will continue to grow and life will continue. I have not given up on my people. There's, in gardening, there's this thing called pruning, right? And there's actually a thing called the terminal branch. And what that means is like in our backyard, we have this giant bush and there's one branch that's like sticking out from the rest of them. And it's growing further than the rest. And what, what I read out on that is that actually no other branch, that's called the terminal branch, no other branch will be able to grow any bigger than that one. And what you do is you cut that one back so then all of them can start growing more fully together. When you have that one out on its own, the rest are kind of like stunted. Does that make sense? So you prune that back and then all of them start growing more fully together. I haven't done it, but I read it. So you can trust Google. It's a real thing, okay? They start growing together, right? Uh, so that, that happens in pruning. You know what else is, is a gardening thing? It's something called grafting. And Paul talks about this in Romans 11. It's another one I encourage you to go read today. Paul talks about in Romans 11, the idea that uh, not only when you cut something back that it can grow more healthy, but actually when you cut something back and then you graft in some other type of plant, 
that those two plants have the potential of growing stronger than they were on their own separately. And so you would cut a branch off of one plant, cut back the branch on another, and you would actually tie them together and they would start growing together, forming one stronger plant. And Paul talks about this in Romans 11, what he's writing to the people of Rome before he gets there in Acts 28. And he says, listen, Gentiles, people of all other nations. Yes, Israel was God's chosen people, but it was always meant so that they would bring other nations in. God always wanted to graft you into his family. And what he had to do was he had to prune back Israel because they actually said, no, no, we're going to be that terminal branch. We're going to grow and let the other nations stay where they are. We're going to be God's people. We're going to be powerful. We're going to be set apart. And they were growing and pushing down. And God said, no, no, that wasn't the plan. So he cuts them back and he grafts in the other nations. And he says to the people in Rome, he says to the Gentiles, the other nations, hey, listen, in the same way that God could graft you in, he desires to graft back in those branches that have been cut off too. And that it's no longer about if you're from Israel or from this nation, it's now if you are grafted into Christ. And that's why in John 15, Jesus talks so much about us being rooted in who he is, abiding in who he is. Because when we are grafted into Jesus, now we become part of this family and part of this bush that grows strong together. And so this garden language, it's not disconnected from what we heard about with the snake earlier, right? In fact, it's very much calling us back. Let's, let's continue what we read in Numbers 21 real quick. Numbers 21, I, I cut us off after the people were like, they prayed, like, hey, help us out, Moses, pray for us so these snakes don't get us. They said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. That's a weird story too, isn't it? Like why a snake? <laughs> you know, why, why, did, why not make a bronze statue of something else that would save them from the snakes? I don't know. I, I don't know. That's my answer. <laughs> Sometimes we don't always know, right? But Here's, here's what Jesus knew about it. Do you guys know that verse, John 3, 16? It's a pretty well-known one, right? Who, who can say it? Good job. Do you guys know John 3, 14? That one's not as famous, is it? It's in the same conversation Jesus is having with a Pharisee, a religious teacher named Nicodemus. He was like a highly renowned teacher in their world. And Jesus says this, John 3, 14 and 15. He says, hey, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must also be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What God was doing in the wilderness was he's saying, you have given yourselves over to the serpent, but I will provide a way out. When you turn and look to this bronze serpent, you will be healed. Didn't we hear that language earlier in Isaiah? 
When you turn and look, you will be healed. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, the teacher of religious Jewish customs, do you, he goes, you remember what happened in the wilderness. You know the story, you teach it. In the same way, I must be lifted up. And when people turn and look to me, they too will be healed. This is a foreshadowing of one who would actually step into the garden and make all things right. But it's not the first foreshadowing we get, is it? In Genesis 3, verse 15. Sorry, Bethany, I went out of order for you there. Jump back to Genesis 3, 15. When God shows up and he finds out that the serpent had deceived the humans and they turn away from him, he says, I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent here, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This word offspring, it's actually the same word as seed. What God did in that moment is while the snake slithered in and sunk his venom into God's people, God steps in and he plants a seed of hope and of restoration and of salvation and of life. And God plants the seed right there in that moment. And he chooses that through these people who just rebelled against him, he would actually send one to come and make all things right. And he chooses this man much later, Abraham, to make a nation of that they would be this people and they fail at it miserably. God says, if you turn and look to me, though, you will be healed. And Jesus shows up and becomes that one true faithful Israelite who says, I'm the one that you turn and look to so that you would be healed. Jesus is the seed that was planted in the garden long ago. And he continues to grow up. And let's read this real quick in John 12 now, verse 24. Jesus understood this, this agricultural talk and language even of himself. And as he's telling his disciples that he needs to go to the cross and die, that he needs to be actually cut off like that terminal branch, he says this, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see what he's saying there? In the same way you cut that one branch back, now all of them could grow more fully. Jesus, though only human who had access to the Father, because our sin and our rebellion and that serpent's lies that sunk its venom into us long ago had separated us from the Father. Jesus being the only human who had a way to the Father because he lived perfectly, because he never sinned, because he always trusted the Father, he always did what he asked. Jesus knew he himself, like that terminal branch, would need to be cut down so that the rest of us, he would have to be that seed that would fall to the ground so that the rest of us, many seeds now, can grow and have life. And so when Paul is speaking these words from Isaiah, and that thing he quotes continues on and talks about this stump being cut back so that life can grow out of it, what he's saying is, listen, you guys, you became that stump out of your ignorance and out of your distrust and now this message is going to spread. These seeds are going to scatter and other nations will come in and grow. But God wants you to come back and be grafted into. But he gets to something much deeper that Israel is not just the one that got cut down to a stump. Jesus himself, he allows himself to get cut down so that we too could have life. And it's because Jesus does that that in Revelation 12, it says this in verse nine. And this is the hope that we have 
Even though Acts doesn't end with a great ending for us, it's because it's just a part of a larger narrative, isn't it? And Paul knew the end of the story. And we too can now know the end of the story. This is what happens. The great dragon was hurled down. This is a vision that uh, John gets of what God's going to do one day. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. He was thrown down. Just like when Paul gets that snake bite, and what does he do? He shakes him off and he throws him down. Jesus, through him being cut down, but then rising back to the newness of life and making a way for that seed to scatter for all people to actually be risen back to new life. That serpent who was leading the whole world astray, Jesus made a way for the whole world to rise again into life. That if we look to him, we'll be healed. Now that serpent, Jesus shakes him off and he gets thrown down and he gets crushed underneath his feet. Acts doesn't give us a good ending, but the whole story does. Acts doesn't give us a good ending because the story's continuing right now through you and I. The story's continuing in Jesus's followers in Japan and in Phoenix and all over the world because the story is continuing through his spirit. In the same way that the spirit showed up and allowed Paul to speak this message in front of people who were trying to kill him, God is still speaking this message to you and through you. To you, because you need to hear the good news that God has not given up on you when you failed to trust in him. And yet he has pursued you and he says, turn and look to Jesus and you will be healed. You will find life. You will find restoration, salvation, renewal. You will be healed. But he wants to speak it through you as well. Because there are people around you who need this message. There are other nations who need this message. There are people in your own house maybe. There are people in your own street. There are people in your workplace, people in your school who need this message. Turn and look to Jesus and you will be healed. Amen.